How are we going tonight, guys? All right, so while they're setting that up, I'd like to start something new here at Axis. Is that okay? Well, that didn't sound very good. Essentially, I went to one of my mate's churches probably like a few months ago, and he did this cool thing when he preached, and I kind of was like, oh, I'm going to steal that. So every time I preach, and Jono can adopt this if he wants to, we need to build some energy before we hear a sermon. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, it's good to be here, and then you respond to that saying, it's wonderful to be here, and then I say, it's wonderful to be here, and you say, it's good to be here. Does that make sense? All right. It's so good to be here. Boy, that's good. It's so wonderful to be here tonight. Is that right? Boy, that worked way better than what I thought it would. All right, thanks, boys, for putting this up here. All right, so I'm sure most of you know, but for those of you who don't, this is the dodgiest looking ladder. Okay, okay. For those of you who don't know, we've been going through the series called the DNA series at the moment. So basically what we've been doing is we've been going through our belief systems as a church and we've been kind of looking deeper into that and kind of seeing how those belief systems can be practically outworked in our own personal lives. So tonight I'm going to be looking at our belief of Christ's likeness. And if you want to look more about our beliefs and that sort of thing, you can see them on the website. So you just need to look them up there. Um, So we've got a slide so you can read along with me as I say it or follow along with me. I remember I said that last time and a few people went to read along with me. It was cute. All right. Jesus Christ is the defining feature of God's will and relationship with all humankind. In Christ is found both newness of life and the highest and clearest example for godliness. People made new in Christ find him to be the source of faith, hope, and love in both the inner life and in our outward actions, engaging a world desperate for hope and life. And I'm not sure about you guys, but when I first kind of heard this concept of Christ-likeness, I was kind of confused and was like, oh, like, why do we have to be Christ-like? Like, why can't we just be good people and just do the right thing and just, you know, follow what everyone else says and make sure we're looking good in God's eyes and people's eyes? And when I was younger, I was always told to be myself, to not follow what other people said. But now we're kind of hearing about this idea of Christ-likeness, which is being like somebody else and modeling somebody else's life. And I'm sure if you've been around church long enough, or maybe even not that long, you would have definitely heard the term Christ-likeness. And so essentially, it encompasses this idea that you no longer think about yourself and what you can do, but how you can imitate Christ. And I guess that can all sound very exciting, but what does it actually mean to be Christ-like? And what does it actually mean to live a Christ-like life? And so tonight I'm hoping to provide you with some insight on how to build a Christ-like life and what that looks like practically lived out. So to help us tonight, I'm going to be using a scripture from 2 Peter 1, 3, verses 3 to 11. And it says this, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these, He has given us His very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in an increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins." 
Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I just want to give you a little bit of background context on Peter before we get into it. So Peter, he wrote two books. He wrote first and second Peter, funnily enough, right? So the first book he wrote, so first Peter was written to encourage Christians at the time. They were going through serious persecution under the rule of Emperor Nero. So he was kind of going, all right, you guys need to like focus on that sort of thing. You need to focus on your relationship with God so you can get through the persecution. And then the second book he wrote was to basically exhort the Christian believers to grow in their faith and relationship with Christ because there was a serious problem of false teaching. So the second, second Peter was essentially about pointing out to the believers there that there was an issue with false teaching and he wanted them to grow in faith and Christ-likeness so that they knew how to combat that false teaching. And so that's kind of where we find ourselves when he's talking about this scripture. But I, re- I really love Peter because he was such a simple man. And I guess who here struggles to understand the Bible sometimes? Yeah, oath. So Peter had the same problem. And it says in chapter 3, he was talking about some of Paul's writings, which is a fellow guy who wrote lots of books in the New Testament. And he said that some of Paul's comments are hard to understand. So here's this guy, Peter. He writes books of the Bible, and he still finds it hard to understand the Bible sometimes. And um, he was a tradesman, a fisherman. And I don't know if it was well, it wasn't the same back then, but I can tell you from experience, you don't have to be the sh- sharpest tool in the shed to grab a fishing rod and hold a stick out there for four hours. So Peter knew that people like we're going to confuse and misunderstand scripture. So he wanted to give a clear and understandable picture of what it means to build onto your faith Christ-like qualities. So let's dive into it. How do we build a Christ-like faith? Peter begins to explain it to us in verses three to four. It says, God through his power has given us everything we need for a godly life. And through Jesus's death on the cross, we can now participate in God's divine nature and be free from the evil and corruption in the world. You see, I think Peter wanted to emphasize that the key in building and growing and developing a Christ-like faith is realizing that it's all about what God has given you and what he can give you rather than what you can give God. He is the one who has given you life and it is not, but it is not through works by which you have been saved. It is by faith. The power to lead a God-honoring Christ-like life does not come from within yourself. It comes from God. Because we don't actually have the right resources to be able to live a Christ-like life. We can't actually do it by ourselves. But the great bit is he allows us to participate, as it says in verse 4, in the divine nature. It is by his grace that we get to be a part of his kingdom here on earth. He has all of the right resources to help you construct a Christ-like life. And he's given it to you. So he's given you all of these things. He's provided you with all these things you're going to be able to need to develop a Christ-like life and live a godly life. So I guess the question is, then what do you have to do? And Peter explains it. He said, because God's given you everything, you've got to make every effort. You've got to make every effort to add, to build, to supply to your faith that you've been given, goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, goodliness, godliness, mutual affection, and love. So essentially, there's the resources over there. I'm not sure if you guys can see that over there. Jakey, don't jump the gun, mate. There's the resources over there. So essentially, that's what God has given us, given you and I, milk crates. 
No, no. The milk crates signify something so much greater. But tonight, I want to use those to demonstrate and create a physical representation of what it looks like to build and add into your life Christ-like qualities. And so, because he's given us the resources, we need to make every effort. And I guess while we all know that milk crates are super light to carry around, I can tell you right now, it's not going to be an easy thing to build these qualities into your life. Have we got any builders in the house or previous builders? No builders. But I guess we can kind of think from the perspective of a builder, how easy is it to build a house? You guys aren't builders, so you wouldn't be able to do it, yeah? Exactly right. It's going to be hard. And in the same sense, we're going to need to make every effort because it's going to be difficult to build these things into our life. And so I guess the question... I feel like I need to ask before we even get into it, or you need to ask yourself, is are you ready to make every effort? Are you willing to make every effort? And so Peter gives us these seven qualities in kind of an order of progression, but not in the sense that you have to complete one level before you can reach the next. Each quality, like each of these things that Peter mentions, is actually something that you need to be working on simultaneously, and they all work together. But God loves us so much to tell Peter to give us an example of like a digestible way that we can begin to work on these qualities. So because he's given us everything we need for a godly life, we must add to our faith goodness. That's your cue. <laughs> so they're going to bring that over here. Oh, boys. Can everyone see that? Oh, that's bad luck. Oh, no. (laughs) And we, we touched on it earlier, but the first thing I noticed when I read this was that it said, add to your faith goodness. It didn't say add to your goodness faith. That's not the way it goes. So the first step in moving towards building a Christ-like life is realizing that it's all about what God has given you, not what you can give God. And once you accept and receive the things he has given you so freely through his son, Jesus, then you have a foundation. You have a faith. Faith always comes first. You're never going to be able to earn your way to a salvation. And James tells us though, he says, but faith without works is dead. And he's not wrong. Works is an outpouring of faith. Goodness and practical goodness comes through faith. It is not the other way around. And so that's why Peter mentions the first thing that springs forth from a foundation in faith is goodness. And I'm not usually the one to be like the wordy type of guy to decipher the Bible um, into all the Greek and Hebrew translations of the original language and all that sort of thing. But when I was preparing for this sermon, I did that. (laughs) I kind of had a look at what these words means. And I was so fascinated by the cultural significance of the words that Peter was using. And so this word goodness actually means excellence in the Greek. But it's more specifically meaning moral excellence. And it was used to describe the proper fulfillment of something. So I'll help you understand here. The excellence of a knife is to cut. The excellence of a horse is to run. The excellence of a car is to drive. The excellence of Jono is to preach, right? We all understand that. But I guess it bears the question, what is the excellence of a person? What is our proper fulfillment? And I think it works imperfectly with what we're talking about tonight, but I think, broadly speaking, the excellence of a man, the proper fulfillment of you and I, 
is to be Christ-like. But more specifically, ooh, and I posed the question earlier in my sermon when I said, why do we have to be Christ-like? Why, why do we have to do it? It's because it's our excellence. It's our true fulfillment in life to be Christ-like. No one buys a knife and uses it as a stapler, right? Like our true excellence and our proper fulfillment, what we've been created to do is to be Christ-like. But more specifically, Peter's referring to a goodness that is being Christ in a practical way. And Michael Green puts it well when he says, indispensable to genuine Christian discipleship is practical goodness. From your foundations in faith, and now having a relationship with Christ, the natural outworking of your faith should begin with practical goodness. It's not an option to be nice to people, to be gracious, to be kind. Practical goodness is a natural overflow and an outward representation of your foundation in faith with Christ. And I guess the question is then, are you practically outworking your faith? Are you developing on your foundations in practical goodness? And I guess what that might look like is, are you serving? Might look like serving, might look like leading, submitting, being a faithful teammate in the team you're a part of. Maybe it's cooking a meal for a neighbor down the street. Are you practically outworking your faith with practical goodness? However, Christianity is so much more than just personal faith and practical goodness. Intellectual thought, the intellectual and thought processing elements behind our personalities have an important place in our Christ-like structure. And that's why knowledge is mentioned next. Oh, yeah, they're, they're going to get good by the end of it. <laughs> and I guess this quality to me almost seems self-explanatory. How are we supposed to continue to grow in our Christ-like structure if we're not trying to develop our knowledge of the one who's given us the resources in the first place, right? So I kind of thought, well, how do we then learn more and grow deeper in a knowledge of Christ, and it's by reading the Word. It says that the Word is a lamp unto our feet. And so I guess how we grow in knowledge is just by reading the Bible. However, there's a problem. Each of these qualities mentioned in the Greek are talking about very specific qualities, not just general ones. So which that signifies that Peter is talking about very specific knowledge. He's not just talking about general knowledge. And I guess what I'm trying to say here is that it's not enough just to know God know God and know the Bible. True knowledge of God comes through the practical outworking of goodness. And this is what Peter is trying to get at. The false teachers had a knowledge of Scripture. The Pharisees had a knowledge of Scripture. The Jews, the Gentiles, they all had a knowledge of Scripture. But true knowledge is actually experienced out there doing practical goodness. That is a true knowledge of God. So did they really know Him? Knowledge is being aware of what you can do Wisdom is knowing when not to do it. You see, knowledge and knowing the Bible will give you an intellectual advantage. And don't get me wrong, like it's always good to learn more about the Bible and grow in your knowledge of Scripture. But I think if you're only going to, you're only going to know how to use the knowledge of Scripture if you are practically building on your faith and outworking goodness. Peter is trying to highlight that if you actually want to have a true knowledge of God. You need to get out there and experience Him. That's how you're going to understand who God is and get a true knowledge of Him. Just by reading the Bible and reading the words on a page, yes, that's important. But you're only actually going to be able to experience who He is 
through a knowledge of him, through outworking practical goodness. Does that make sense? So knowledge is being aware of what you can do. Wisdom is knowing when not to do it. And that leads us to our next building block, self-control. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's done well. Okay, with knowledge, wisdom, power comes great responsibility. We've all heard that before. And I think we all understand the meaning of self-control. It's quite, it's pretty self-explanatory. But biblically speaking, this idea of self-control covers every single area of our lives. It really means controlling your passions and desires and lusts of this world so that they don't control you. This is the person who can control their stomach and stay on their diet. This is the single person who lives in a sexually consumed society but remains a virgin until marriage. This is the spouse that continues to love and respect in obedience to God's command even when disappointed and hurt. This is the person who controls his anger and frustration and remains calm while in the middle of a traffic jam on the highway. This is the person who steps in the direction of his fears and does what God says to do, even though scared to do it. This is true self-control. And this is why Peter mentioned practical, the practical wisdom and knowledge that he did. Knowledge is being aware of what you can do, but wisdom is knowing when not to do it. He knew that without a practical knowledge and wisdom of God, self-control is going to be very difficult for you because you're going to know what, like, what the scripture says, but you're, going to, you're not going to know how and when not to do something. So I guess I want to give you a practical step to help you with self-control. And it's called Don't Camp Next to Your Besetting Sin. And I think there's a slide. Oh, there it is. And I heard about this a long time ago from another pastor at a church um, in Minden in Ipswich, near Ipswich. Um, and it changed my life the way that he described this and talked about this. And so essentially the story goes that a husband and wife were on the beach and they were driving up the beach just looking for somewhere to camp. Um, and the wife looks at the husband and says, oh, like, that's such a great spot over there, just up on the hill. Like, it would look so nice when the sunrise is coming up in the morning. And he goes, oh, like, I've checked the weather and it's going to rain. So I don't think that'll be a great spot because it's kind of like a little bit of a valley there. And if it rains, everything's going to get wet, right? And happy wife, happy life. So they end up camping there, okay? So didn't take much. <laughs> so they ended up camping there despite knowing that it was going to rain. They knew that it was going to rain. They camped there anyway. Lo and behold, it bucketed down rain. They get up the next day and everything they'd set up for camp was completely drenched. The point of the story is that they chose to set up camp somewhere where they knew it was going to rain. And so for those of you who don't know what this word besetting sin means, it basically is like the sin in your life that constantly entraps you. And I don't need to tell you what that is. Everybody knows what that is for them. It doesn't take much thought. Everyone knows the sin that is constantly entrapping them. So I guess practically, if alcohol is a problem for you, don't go anywhere near a pub or anywhere near a bottle or anywhere near where you're going to be able to get tempted. Don't camp where you know it's going to rain. Don't camp. If pornography is a problem for you, delete Facebook, delete Instagram. Just don't even go on the internet. You need to begin to set boundaries in place so that you're not even going to be tempted. Don't camp where you know it's going to rain. And I feel like, like when I heard this, like I probably tell myself multiple times during the day where I know that I'm camping. I'm like, don't camp, don't camp, don't camp. If it's like online shopping, like get rid of all your credit cards. Just get rid of your computer altogether. It's not worth it. Don't camp next to your besetting sin. Self-control is going to become very easy if you're not even giving the devil a foothold to be able to tempt you in that way. 
And so through the practice of self-control and not camping where you know it's going to rain, it's going to give birth to perseverance. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying. <clears throat> we get to mutual affection later. This is going to be a high stack, mate. You've got to make sure it balances as well. All right, it's looking good. So, the interesting thing is, when you're all the way up here in your Christ-like journey, it becomes easier for the devil to pull you off and push you off. So in your, in your process of developing these things, once you get here, it's going to be harder to stay here. And the interesting thing is, and I guess the scary thing is, is the higher you get up and the further you build onto your Christ-like life, the further the fall is going to be, the more damage that is going to be caused, right? And so you're going to have to learn ways to persevere in the midst of hard times and struggles, right? True faith endures. The perseverance that Peter is talking about here is not one that just accepts everything that happens badly in your life blindly. True perseverance comes from a faith in the promises of God, a knowledge of Christ, and an experience of His divine power. And James tells us to count it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that these trials produce endurance. So we must count these trials as joy because we can trust in the promises of God, because we know Him and we know His Word through practice. We can persevere knowing that these trials will produce endurance. And I was listening to a Michael Todd sermon recently, and it said, when you're experiencing uncomfortability and difficulty in your life, it's generally for your growth. So I guess practically, where do you need to look back in your life or in your life right now and see that, oh, maybe this is actually for my growth. Maybe God's actually trying to develop some endurance and some perseverance in me right now. Don't just discard what you're going through right now. Maybe you're supposed to be in this job. Maybe God's trying to actually teach you something. So you've got to persevere. Adding on to perseverance comes godliness. I feel like I need to walk the ladder just in case. It's exciting, isn't it? It's pretty thrilling. <laughs> so on top of perseverance comes godliness. Now, when I first saw this word godliness, I kind of just assumed that godliness meant like being religious, like doing the right thing, making sure that you do your washing when your mum tells you to, like just doing the right thing and making sure that again, you're looking right in the eyes of God and in the eyes of others. But again, when I was looking deeper, this quality is referring again to a practical element. And it's actually referring to a practical awareness of God. Not just the awareness of God in the places you want or the places you think He might be present. An awareness of God in every aspect of your life. So true godliness is actually awareness of the Spirit in your life working in and through every area of your life. You know, God doesn't just disappear after church on a Saturday or a Sunday. God doesn't just disappear after you do your quiet time in the morning or in the evening. He's present in every area of your life all the time. And He wants to remain the focus in every area of your life, in the mundane, in the everyday. 
Godliness is a reverence to God. It means to live your life completely for Him, but not to just do it. Do it joyfully. To be acutely aware as you're doing what you're doing, to be aware that the Spirit is working in and through you. And what this really looks like is Christians on fire for God, sold out for Him, willing and ready to obey and serve no matter what that looks like. And I guess some might describe this type of awareness and reverence for God as fanatical or foolish. And I guess I understand that that word fanatical and foolish can sometimes carry some negative connotations, but it spurred a conviction in me, and I hope it does the same for you. There's a man that once saw how on fire for God a pastor was, and he came to the pastor and he said, you're just a fool for Christ. And the pastor responded and he said, I guess I am. And he said, we're all fools for someone or something. Whose fool are you? And so I know it's strong language, but whose fool are you, church? Everyone is giving their devotion to something. Some of you might be giving your devotion to late night gaming, to shopping, to music, to your job, to your family, hobbies, to your girlfriend or to your boyfriend, whatever it may be. But to further build a Christ-like life, godliness needs to be your devotion. And sometimes godliness being your devotion and having this awareness of Christ in your life all the time is going to come at a cost. It might come at the cost of reputation, status, friendship, finances, whatever it may be. But God is at work in everything you do, whether it be preaching, cleaning, building, teaching, fixing, writing, garbage collecting, carpet cleaning, mothering. God has placed you there for a purpose. And none of these occupations or things I just mentioned carry greater significance than the other. God's placed you there for a reason, and He wants to use you, and He doesn't want you to overlook the significance of where He has you right now. But He needs your devotion to be on godliness. Because if you're not going to work being aware that God could be using you, then how is He supposed to use you? You don't go to work for your employer or for your boss. You go to work for God. You don't go to school for your teachers or for the curriculum. You go to school for God. You don't go to uni for your career or whatever you want to achieve in life. You go to uni for God. That is what true godliness looks like. And it's this constant awareness of Him in your life and how He can use you. But I guess godliness is not fully complete without mutual affection. Godliness, godliness presents the structure from which mutual affection can be built. So up we go. This is going to be interesting. Look, guys, no hands. You can just hear Yvonne in the front row, like, squirming. <laughs> so... Wow, I'm up here. So in other translation, this mutual affection is also called brotherly love and brotherly kindness. And now it's interesting when looking at this, again, the higher you get up, the more you strive towards the pinnacle of your Christ-like journey, the more that God actually wants you to look down and around to the people around you and how you can look at them and go, oh, wow. I think they need some help. How can you extend your hand down and lift someone else up and help them to begin to build their own Christ-like life? And I guess the reason why we have this mutual affection or why we need to have this mutual affection is because we're all a part of the same family. And I can tell you right now, 
I don't always get along with my brother or sister, but I guess I would do anything for them to help them grow and to help protect them because we're part of the same family. And I guess maybe that circumstance and that family dynamic doesn't look the same for you and your family. But what I'm trying to say is that God's fa- in God's family, brothers and sisters in Christ are supposed to love one another. And it's not an option. And Jono talked about it last week when he shared the C.S. Lewis quote. And it says, To love all is to be vulnerable because love is unselfishly choosing for another's highest good. And I guess when you get to this point, it's not like all the other qualities stop. They keep going. But when you get to this point of mutual affection, what happens is that the priorities of your brothers and sisters in Christ become more important. And you again start to see their highest goods and the things that are going on in their life above your highest goods. You begin to put them above yourself. And I guess who is in your life that you need to get around and extend your arm out to or down to or beside you? Who is in your life that you need to be doing that with or doing that for? Thanks, Jaden. And I guess I came up with like a little saying and it says, the more you grow, the more you must sow. So essentially, the further you get up the ladder and the structure and building your own Christ-like life, the more you actually have to look down and look beside you to the people around you and find opportunities where you can actually sow into somebody else's life not just your own. This is not just a personal journey with you and God. It's really not. You've got to look to the people around you and got to go, how can I sow seeds of goodness and things in them so they can begin to build foundations and be- to begin to build their own Christ-like life? And I guess maybe for you, there's that one person in your life that you just know you need to be loving and showing mutual affection towards, but it's just so hard because you're all the way up there and they're just down here. They're still working on their foundations. And Oh, like, I just don't think I'll be able to talk to them because I don't think they'll understand where I'm at because I'm all the way up here and they, they're all the way down there. And I just don't know if they'll listen to me. I don't know if they'll get it. Maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum. Maybe you're kind of down the bottom looking up going, oh, I hear about this love between brothers and sisters in Christ, but I'm just not experiencing it. But I just need it. But I guess they come here and they see all the rest of us or some people here up the top and they go, they're just too high. They're just too far up there and I'm not good enough. I'm still working on my foundations. How can I approach somebody up there if they're just so high and they've got it all sorted out and I've got nothing sorted out? Church, that's not how it is supposed to be. The further you go, the more you must sow. Um, I also want to demonstrate how difficult it is to actually love one another. There's a story where a guy... He got a jar and he got a bunch of ants. He got some red ants and he got, there's not ants in here, don't worry. (laughs) You guys were all like, um, (laughs) um, so he got a jar and he got red ants and he got black ants and he put the ants in the jar and he put it down on a table and he just wanted to see how that interact. And they were fine. They were living the dream, running around in the jar, having a great time, loving one another, mutual affection, all that, right? Christ-like lives. Um, And then he grabs the jar And he shakes it and he puts it back down and all the ants just go crazy. And they think that the reason they're experiencing this turbulence in their life is because of the other ants. So they start eating each other and they start killing each other, right? But the the point is like, how much does that happen in our lives with our brothers and sisters? How often do we look at someone else and go, why are they doing that? Like you try and attribute the turbulence in your life. You're trying to attribute that 
to one of your brothers and sisters in Christ. But the point is, the real enemy in this situation was the person shaking the jar. It wasn't the other ants in the jar. And I guess the point is, if you want to be growing and developing in mutual affection, you need to know that there's an enemy that is going to constantly be trying to damage you doing that. You need to understand that there is someone constantly shaking the jar. Maybe in your life right now, you are experiencing some turbulence with a brother and sister in Christ. And I think maybe you need to come to the realization that, oh, maybe it's actually not them. Maybe it's actually just the enemy manipulating the situation and shaking the jar. Because he's going to do everything he can. And we just got to understand that he's going to be shaking that jar. So we've got to do everything we can to not stop loving each other and showing mutual affection to one another. And to land this plane, as Jono likes to call it, we reach the pinnacle of our faith in practice. And it's love. This is going to be good. Hold them on. I honestly don't know if John is going to let me do this tomorrow. Um, So essentially, that is the pinnacle of our relationship and our own Christ-like journey. But this love goes beyond the love of those that we just have something in common with. This love exists and is given in spite of differences. This is the self-sacrificial love that chooses and commits itself to the best interests of others. And we've like all heard the, the verse before, the, it's the equal greatest commandment to love God and to love others. And we kind of talked about it and touched on it there in the mutual affection. But this love is the love of God that is given to us. And it's the type of love that is to exist between believers so that the world will know we are disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the way, this whole thing, but the pinnacle, this is the way everyone else is going to know that we live a Christ-like life through the way that we love God and we love others. And I guess the big idea in this passage is that each of these qualities is added by faith to the previous quality so that they build upon each other so the whole is strengthened. It is not that each step needs to be completely mastered before you move on to the next step. The beauty is that each step, when you start performing it, presents the structure from which the next can be built. All of these things are things that you need to be working on. But I guess Peter, I'm so thankful for him. He gives us a simple way to be able to learn how to build and like discover what it means to live a Christ-like life. And he sums it up perfectly in verse 10. And he says, if you do these things, you will never stumble. When I read that, I was just blown away. If you do these things, you will never stumble. And I'm not sure where you guys are at in your relationship with Christ, but when I became a Christian, all I wanted to do was be effective for God. All I wanted to do was just do the right thing and to honor Him, and I was constantly stumbling and constantly disappointing Him. But the beauty is, if you do these things and begin to work on these things, then there's no way you can't be effective for Christ. And I guess I'm not the greatest preacher. I'm not the greatest evangelist. I'm absolutely not the greatest communicator of Scripture, but this is so, so important. This, like, take a picture of it, just write it down, do whatever you have to do, because if you want to be effective for Christ, you need to begin 
to build these qualities into your life. And I guess that's all I've got to share with you guys tonight. I hope you were blessed and I hope that God was speaking to you through me and I'm keen to do it again tomorrow if I'm allowed. Do you want me to close in prayer? All right, let's bow our heads together and pray. Father God, I just want to thank you so much for this opportunity that you've blessed me with to be able to try um, and explain Scripture to these beautiful people here. God, I just pray that you would be working in each and every one of these hearts here in this building, God. I just, I just pray that you would show them what it means to live a Christ-like life, that they would understand that they don't actually have what it takes to live a Christ-like life. But I thank you so much that you sent your son to die a criminal's death so that we can have salvation, so that you have given us all the resources we need to build a Christ-like life. All we need to do is make every effort. And so I pray that as they leave here, they would not just leave and think, oh, okay, that was, that was all right. I'm not going to do those things. I just pray that they would make every effort to add all of these qualities into their life so that they can be effective for you. And so they can sow into the lives of other people, God, so that everyone can begin to build foundations in faith and in Christ, because that is our true excellence, Father. That is what we have create, been created to do, is to be Christ-like. So I just pray that we can be that to our community and, our, and to our suburb, Father. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.